of you who don't know me, my name's Quinn. Um, I've been here at Redeemer for about three and a half years. I'm a first semester grad student. Um, I'm batting sixth today because the three elders and two interns are in Washington, D.C. So uh, uh, that's where I'm at in the lineup. And so, but I am excited to get to share with you guys today. I'm going to be sharing a sermon I did for our preaching lab a couple weeks ago, um, Man Meets Woman. It's going to be about marriage, um, and it's going to be uh, Genesis chapter 2 verses 18 through 25. So while you get there, I'm going to start with, with a story. Um, I'll never forget the encounter I had um, with a fellow college classmate uh, during the icebreaker. Our teacher was looking to kind of break the ice, gets in the groups, and you're asking those you know, two truths and a lie questions and whatnot. And uh, eventually, at some point, I don't know how it came up, but it came out that I was married. You know, I, a 21-year-old college student, was married. And uh, this girl's mouth just visibly just dropped to the floor like a broken accordion and um and she caught she knew it right away because she she caught herself and she goes um you know preface with an explicitive she was like oh my gosh my mouth just dropped and um that was a common kind of a common occurrence whenever i'd be introducing myself or someone would ask me why are you wearing a wedding band um and, and i often find myself quick having to preface like this wasn't a shotgun wedding that I wasn't like forced into marriage out of obligation, but it's actually something that I had desired. And maybe people's opinion could probably be best summed up with uh, what a, a college intern and actually an Illinois football player said to me. He, he looked at me and he's like, what are you? Um, and so, and so these, these humorous examples aside, these reactions to, to my being married, um, they actually portray a deep, sinister, and depressing view that our culture has of marriage. Um, and simply and succinctly put, our culture hates marriage. Um, or at best, is extremely wary of it, right? That we'll only enter into it on certain uh, conditions, self-absorbed, egotistical conditions. Um, and the reason why that is, is I would argue none of us are neutral about marriage. Our, cult- our culture isn't neutral about marriage because none of us as individuals are neutral about marriage. That's because none of us as individuals are neutral about the Creator. And if you had been in the preaching lab, we had kind of been tracking through Genesis 1 and 2 and seeing how, you know, the problem with this world now is that as individuals, we do not want to serve God. We want to shrink the cosmos down to ourselves. We want to worship ourselves. As Chet always says, he says, we want to live like this is our world and we are God. And so the problem um, with, with marriage is that in our culture, our culture's view of marriage is that we, we all... We obviously are, are rebellious against um, the Creator. You don't have to be a young married like me to see that. I mean, you can see the divorce rates continue to climb. You can continue to see cohabitation be something that's just sort of just accepted as the norm. There's the show, The New Normal. I've never seen it. But kind of this war to redefine what family is. Um, we see chicken sandwich shops boycotted uh, simply because they're pro-family, because they support uh, traditional family values. And so whether you like it or not, you're not born into a culture that's neutral about marriage because our culture is not neutral about the creator. And we want marriage and gender to find our own terms. We want the purpose of marriage to mean whatever is, is convenient for us, whatever we desire to mean, because ultimately we desire to worship ourselves and we desire to be God. And so what, we're, what we were doing in Genesis 1 through 2, Moses is trying to give us a true uh, self-knowledge, trying to bring us to true self-knowledge of ourselves. And John Calvin wisely says, you know, true self-knowledge, as far as it's true self-knowledge, comes from two things, knowledge of the Creator and then knowledge of ourselves in light of the Creator. And so 
in, in Genesis 1, Moses gives given us a panorama shot of creation. He's given this big shot of this is what's happened on seven days. And then in chapter 2, Moses takes a snippet of that and zooms in on the creation of man and woman. And then in 18 through 25, he pushes that a little farther and says, okay, here's the creation of man, here's the creation of woman. Now how are they to relate to each other? And that's what we're going to look at today, how man and woman were created to relate to each other. And that's within the context of holy marriage. So if you would turn with me to Genesis 2, verses 18 through 25, and uh, we'll read that together. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had made every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and brought her to man. And then man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Pray for me real quick. Dear Father, we come before you. We thank you just for your word. God, just give us insight into your word today as we look to understand marriage and how we are created to relate to one another as man and woman, God. Um, We just confess, Lord, that we come in with, with sin. We come in curved into ourselves, looking into ourselves. And we need your help, God, to break down um, the sinful preconceptions that we have of, of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman and what marriage means. So forgive us, God, where we fall short in that and enlighten us today. May your Holy Spirit open our eyes um, to understand the sacred and holy gift. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so before um, we kind of push forward into 18 through 25, I think it's helpful to go see the creation of man and woman a little bit earlier because it's kind of a crucial hinge for understanding marriage. So back in chapter 1, verse 26 to 27, God says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. He's, he's talking in the Trinity. Jesus, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are talking together. He said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the flesh of the sea, the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, there's a lot of speculation about what, okay, what does the image of God mean? And often, you know, people are like, well, it means, you know, we're creative like God, you know, so, so we're in the image of God. Or we have emotions like God. And all that stuff is true. Um, but I think the core foundational um, meaning of what it means to be made in the image of God is actually found in Colossians 3.10, where Paul says, and you, he's speaking to Christians, he says, and you have put on a new self which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of the Creator. So really at base level, what it means to be made in the image of God is that you have knowledge of the Creator. All right? You as a human being are created to know God. You're created to have knowledge of God. And um, that just, you know, whatever Peter says, you're, not, you're, you're more important than animals. And you're more important than the earth. You're, you are, you're made particularly special in the fact that you have affections, you're worshipful, you have a heart that worships, and it's, that heart is made to have knowledge of God. It's, it's imprinted on your heart. 
Um, to keep us humble, God makes us from the dust, however, reminding us that we're not self-existent. Um, we, are, we are material. We are made out of, we are made out of, out of him alone. We are not, we're not self-existent. Um, but we're yet we are still brought to life by the breath of God, as it says. He breathes the breath of life into man. So we, are, we have a soul. We are created to know God, um, making ourselves unique from all other animals. So that, that's how man was made. And so then now, now the question is, so, so what was man made for? And if you would have been with us in the preaching lab, we would have seen that man was created for work, that before the fall, before sin came into the world, work was ordained. It was good. Um, God, God ordained it to, to be the, the plot of man. And included in that was man was created to worship, that everything he was to do was designed and was made to be for God's glory. And so whether he was leaving out the design of God and, and his, his role as a viceroy over all the earth, as a, as a worker of the ground, or if he was um, obeying the decrees of God not to eat of the, the fruit of the tree, he was worshiping. And then, as we're going to talk about today, he was also created to be fruitful and to multiply and to procreate, to cultivate and advance the culture and the species. And that's, that's what it means to be fruitful. And that kind of gets into, uh, to, you know, to be fruitful, you need another person in the wedding. And there needs to be a purpose created for wedding. And so that's how man was created. And then we saw how woman was created, right? She was created out of the side of man. She was fashioned out of the side. And that's not, as we'll see, it's not random. It's not like God is just like, this will be kind of cool just to take a rib out of a guy. It's kind of crazy. We can do this and, and form a woman out of this. But God is intentionally saying something there. Woman is taken out of the side of man as an extension of man, right? If you go back up to verse 26 and 27 in chapter 1, he says, let us, in the image of God, let's create man. Male and female, he created them. So they both have the image of God. It's a quality. But, but they're the same essence. They're taken, a woman is taken out of man. She's not taken out of the grass. She's not taken out of the water. Um, she's not taken out of the dust like him. She's taken out of his side to indicate this, this partnership. So by extension, she's fashioned in, fashioned in the image of God um, from the side of man. And that goes right into the reason why she was created. Why was she created? Well, she was created also for work, but in the sense of she's helping man fulfill his role his, as a viceroy over, over what God had given Adam. So she is created to be, we call it here at Redeemer, we're complementarian, meaning we believe that the, that the sexes are equal, um, but they're complementary. The meaning they're equal, but they have different roles. They complement each other. This is beautiful harmony that's happening between them. And so she likewise is created for worship because she's worshiping God in that role, and she likewise is created for wedding, as we'll see today. So now we're going we're to zoom into that, that purpose of created for wedding, that, both, that bring both man and woman together. And so the first point, we're going to ask, we're going to ask two questions during the sermon. How were man and woman created to relate, which is I'd call the first marriage. Also, that point could be called the first marriage. And then why is that the case? So why does God create? What's the purpose of that model? And so first, how are man and woman created to relate? We'll see that there's, there's one model, there's one God, the Father, officiating, and then there's one purpose, one flesh, rather, one flesh. So one model, one God, the Father, officiating, and one flesh. So first of one model, God did not create man to be alone. In verse 18, it's as clear as day, it's easy exegesis. He just says, it's not good that man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. And so this is... Very clear. Um, if you go back to chapter 1, the big shot of creation, he ends by saying, it's very good, right? He says, 
this is all very good. In chapter 2, he says it's not good, meaning even after man had been created, God didn't put his final stamp of approval. He's like, there's still, the still isn't good. There's still something else that needs to, needs to be done. And that something else is, is to bring a partner in, to, to, to um, supplement man with a partner. And this solution is fulfilled by one man, one woman, um, pairing them with each other in, the, in a covenant relationship known as marriage. So from the foundation of the world... Marriage is built into the Creator's design. From the second page of our Bible, it's defined as one woman, one man, covenanting together before God. And included in this covenanting together, within this model, is two appointed roles, as we, as we alluded to earlier. Um, God's intention was for both man and woman to fulfill a unique role within creation. And we see this role demonstrated in 18 through 25. I mean, man was created first. He was placed in the garden, given commands to communicate. He was to initiate. He was the one that's to leave. He's the one that makes the vows. He's the one that leaves and cleaves to his wife. He names her. He calls her woman because she's brought out of a man. It's a sign of authority, just as he did the other animals. And she was made to, his, made to be his helper, once again, made out of his side, not, not made out of something else. He's, he's, she's coming out of him. Uh, you know, God has never done... Um, anything random in his entire existence, which has been forever. So he's, he's not random at all. He's, he's got intentionality in how he does this whole thing. And how he creates her out of the side all the more highlights this, this idea of two different roles that are complementary. Now, at this point, if we're honest, is anyone uncomfortable a little bit? Because it is. It, it gets a little uncomfortable. We're kind of like, I don't know. It, it feels a little bit like there's inequality going on here. I don't know if I like this idea of, like, submission. Um, and I would argue that if you're a Christian and you have a problem with this, you have a problem with Jesus. Um, because Jesus himself, who's the perfect picture of submission? It's Jesus, right? Jesus within the Trinity. Is Jesus God? Do we believe Jesus is God? Yeah. Do we, is, he, is he the exact imprint of God's nature? Is he all-powerful? Do we believe he's going to come back and every knee is going to bow before him? The answer is yes, right? And so... Who's submissive? Jesus. He's submissive to the Father. Is he less God? No. But he chooses within the Trinity to model submission to us. So this call to submission is not not an ugly thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's not a weak thing either. We often think of submission as kind of weak. Um, That's truly not the case. And I would argue that our problem with this is, is, is our sin. And it's our low view of submission. This is a beautiful thing that Eve and Adam are in perfect relationship in such a way that I will help you fulfill your role and I will serve you and we will complement each other and we will fulfill the purposes of God together in humility and service. That's a beautiful thing. And, and only after sin did the gender war start, right? God says, you know, because you have done this, you're... Your, your desire will be for your husband to rule over him, and his desire will be to he- be heavy-handed with you. And there's this constant competition that we see in our culture as, as, as these kind of wars rage between men and women. And that's a result of sin. And so when people look at this and they're like, how patriarchal, how, how chauvinistic, um, I don't like it. It's offensive. And it's like, well, yeah, it's offensive because you're sinful. You know, it's offensive because, because you hate God, ultimately, deep down in your life. You don't want to live according to his design. You'd rather define this on your own terms. But early on, we see that this is definitely an objectively beautiful thing. So that's the one model. And then we have one God the Father officiating, right? So who's instituting this marriage? It's clear that it's God. It's his doing. He creates. He brings it together. 
He inspires Moses to record it, how he does. He sanctions it. And then also, what does the father do, the the father of the daughter in a wedding today? That was really confusing, sorry. So (laughs) the father gives away his daughter, right? In our contemporary weddings today, you know, who gives away this woman to be married? And it's like, I do. And gives away his daughter and cries a bunch and kind of gives her off. And and, um, that's what the father's doing here. That's what God is doing. He creates Adam's asleep, creates woman. Brings her before Adam and gives her away. And then who does Adam make his vows to? He's not, he's not making it to the birds. He's making it to God. And so he makes this vow before God. And so God is the one that is instituting and officiating this marriage. Okay, third, we see that marriage, this, uh, this marriage has one flesh. The design of this marriage had one flesh. And one flesh means many things. First, it means marriage was sexual. If you look at uh, verse 23 through 25, he goes, this is the last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And man and wife are both naked and not ashamed. And so it's pretty obvious what's going on here. And Christians throughout history have sometimes disputed this. They'd like to say that, you know, sex was a re- existed only after the fall. Um, I don't know how that's possible. Uh, God makes a call to procreate. Um, I guess you can make the argument that they were just running around, frolicking, unclothed, frolicking naked, but it seems like um, this call of one flesh, leaving and cleaving, holding fast, naked and ashamed, and the call to procreate make it pretty clear what's going on. Um, and so I think that argument doesn't hold a lot of water. Um, so this, this verse, though, is seriously extremely important. This is an extremely important thing for us to understand in our culture because there's a misunderstanding in our culture that the Christians hate sex, that we're kind of against it, that's maybe even at best a necessary evil, we've got to have some kids, we have to procreate, so we'll, we'll do it just to have the kids. Um, but that's, that's not true at all. Who, whose idea was it for sex? It's God's. Before the fall, God institutes. That's, that's our evidence right there that it's a good thing, that God creates it. And so we often fall into this, this trap of thinking our, our, our culture has too high a view of sex. That's not the problem. The problem of our culture is it has a low, disgusting, selfish, childish view of sex. That's the problem. It's not that they have a high view of sex. Nobody has a higher view of sex than God. No one. And no one should have a higher view of sex than the Christian. And so we have a, higher, we have a high spiritual view of sex. And, and human sexuality is, is, is intentionally made by God, particularly for men, to drive him towards manhood and towards marriage, right? It was God's wisdom to make him like that, to create him like that. So for you to partake in the gift of marriage, you know, you're, it's, it's a call of man to leave his father and mother. You've got to grow up. You've got to get out of your parents' piggy bank. You've got to pursue a woman. You've got to be a man. You've got to take domain over the things that are around you and steward them well. And so that it's a drive towards manhood. It's part of God's design. It's built into creation. It's a good thing. Um, it's just that our culture twists it and, and cheapens it. And so, um, but it's, it's good for us to understand that it, it is created by God and is glorious. <clears throat> and then included in that also, this one flesh, is it, it's definitely no less than sex, but it's more than that too. And this gets into our higher view of sex. It's because marriage was covenantal. From the foundation, marriage is covenantal. But the context that, our, that this high view of spiritual sexual intimacy takes place is within this idea of covenant. Um, that man and woman are in a covenant relationship, that they covenant to each other and then receive each other fully and unconditionally. 
um, taken on a new identity known as one flesh. And this is the closest human relationship possible, human-to-human relationship possible, because it's the only one where souls are, are, are announced to be one flesh, where there's a fusion of souls. This isn't a one-night stand. It isn't like, you know, I'll, I'll meet you here, and I'll meet you here, and we'll kind of um, meet each other halfway. We're not really being vulnerable for our souls. We're just being selfish. Um, what's happening here is two people are in the context of marriage, covenanting together, and then displaying that covenant through, through an act that is, that is pure, and glorified by God is not something to be ashamed of. Um, also, one flesh shows that the first marriage was romantic. Um, there's a bit of poetic flair here when, when man first sees woman in verse 23. I don't think it's just like an anthropo- anthropological uh, statement that he's making. It's not an anthropology lesson. He's not like, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should call woman because she's my same species. You know, he's, he's, he's poetically um, stating here like, you know, this is that last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should call, be called woman because she was taken out of man. And they shall, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to her, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife are both naked and not ashamed. That's a, that's a romantic thing. And that's, marriage is not just pragmatic. Um, it's something that God created to, to model his love, his service. I think Jeff was telling me a story about a guy the other day who, uh, who said, he's like, I married my wife. I didn't want to, but the Lord made me. And, uh, and so it's just like that's – I don't think that's really getting at – we kind of come from a mystical background of, of people that kind of open the Bible and point. And if you see a Sarah, you marry a Sarah. You go try to find a Sarah, you know, Bible roulette, kind of trying to over-spiritualize it. And, um, and, and that's, that's not really what God intended. He, he intended it to be um, you loving someone and, and sacrificing and, and romantically pursuing someone. Um, within this context of covenant. And so, after all that, we see that, we can conclude that this, this one flesh all points to the fact that marriage was good and glorious, that God saw it, ordained it, there was no shame, there's innocence, there's bliss in it. So we've seen God's design for marriage, right? We've seen one model, we've seen one God officiating it, we've seen um, a one flesh, and so now we're going to ask, you know, what's the purpose, okay? So this is, this is the design, what's the purpose? And John Piper, in his book, Momentary Marriage, just nails this. He goes, The most foundational thing to see from the Bible about marriage is that it is God's doing. And that's what we've just seen, right? God's done all this. That's his design. So the most foundational thing is to see that it's God's doing. And the ultimate thing is to see from the Bible about marriage is that it is for God's glory. So most foundationally, marriage is the doing of God. But ultimately, marriage is the display of God. And so we can say marriage is for the joy of man and women. That's true. Marriage is for multiplying and cultivating. That's true. But ultimately, if you're really getting down to what is the, what is the base purpose of all of this, it's for the glory of God. And there was a pastor at a wedding that I was at about a year ago where just, he just came out. You know, sometimes you kind of see it in the sermon, and that's kind of what they're pointing to. But sometimes they just come out and say it, and he's just like, and we all know that the purpose of marriage is for the happiness of man and woman. And it's just like, man, you missed it. Like, you just missed it. That's, that's not at all what the Bible says about the main purpose of marriage. And so we're going to talk about the three main purposes of marriage and how they glorify God. Um, one, it glorifies God's covenant-keeping grace. So God always keeps his covenant. We talked about covenant, how two people come and say, hey, unconditionally, I'm covenanting to you. I'm going to be faithful to you no matter what you do. Um, 
no matter if I if you deserve it, I'm going to be faithful to you. I'm going to covenant to you. Well, God is a perfect example of covenant. He covenants in a way that none of us have covenanted. All throughout the Bible, we see him covenanting to his people. He always comes through on his promises, even when his people are rebellious. He always comes through loving, forgiving, serving. Um, he's always keeping his covenant throughout all of Scripture. And that's perfectly pictured, obviously, in Christ's work on the cross. And that's why we get right into the next thing and how marriage how it glorifies God is through glorifying the relationship between Christ and the church. And so we have to go to Ephesians 5. You've got to go there if you're talking about marriage, the old marriage text, Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. Um, but there's a reason why people always go here. It's because here, you know, Paul just most clearly um, lays out, I think more so than any other place in the Bible, just lays out foundationally, hey, here's the connection of marriage in this, this mystery of Christ and, in this, and how it glorifies God. <clears throat> so read that with me. Or I'll read it. Don't read it with me. <laughs> uh, wives, submit to your husbands as the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body and is himself as Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. In the same way, husbands love your wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it, cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So Paul, there it is. Paul just says, he just lays it out. He even says, and if you go up to 31, he's quoting right from Moses. He's quoting right from Genesis. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two become one flesh. So two people become one flesh. And he goes, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. So you look at that beautiful picture in Genesis, and you see two people coming together, covenanting, faithfully loving each other unconditionally. And the greatest picture of that, Paul's saying that's just a small snippet of the greatest act of love and covenant you'll ever see in the universe, and that's Jesus Christ on the cross. And so Jesus comes into this world. He comes as a, as a submissive servant of God who loves us, who are sinners that are far from him, that are cut off by sin, who want to live like we're God, want nothing to do with him. And then he even, even though we hate him, he dies for us. And those that put their trust in him, who put their faith in Jesus, are justified and are brought into a, a one-flesh relationship, essentially, with, with Jesus. Jesus is in a one-flesh relationship with the church. When God sees the church, it's not that he doesn't see our sin, but he sees Jesus' righteousness forgiving our sin, that our sin's been dealt with, and now we are, we are brought into fellowship with the Father. And that is the ultimate picture of this one-flesh union and this covenant love. And so that leads right into the next point. The last thing is, not only does it glorify Christ in the church, but more broadly, marriage glorifies the gospel, mainly justification, sanctification, and glorification. And so I was going to go into Colossians 2. I'm not going to do that. Um, just more broadly say, Paul in his letters a lot of times grounds his imperatives, his commands that he's telling people, you know, you should therefore do this. That therefore is always attached back at what has been foundationally done for you, right? 
So in, in Colossians, it says, forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. You know, put on then as God's chosen ones, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against the other, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And if you go up to what Paul says was attached to that, therefore, or put on then, it's all attached to objective things that God has done for you. And so I said I wasn't going to read them, but I guess I will, I guess. And you are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made you alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And then he goes right on to that, put, there, put on then this. So if you've been saved, so horizontally, as a Christian, you are receiving justification first. That, that means that you have a bunch of sin, and God hates it, and he absolutely despises that sin. And I, I think the analogy of, of your sin is, is God's wrath is like a dam where the water is just building up. Every time you sin, it's just building up, building up, because he's a holy God, and he cannot be in, in union of sin. And eventually, that for every person, that, that hits a tipping point where God's wrath is, is going to come out and is going to be poured out on the unbeliever, and we see that obviously manifested in, in separation from God and hell. And justification is that Jesus comes, he's, he sees that dam of water, and knows that that water is going to have to tip. Someone's going to have to drink that up. And Jesus comes and says, I will do that for them. And, and the Father pours out his wrath on his Son, and Jesus drinks the cup of wrath on the cross, therefore justifying us. So, like we said, it doesn't mean just mean that our sin's dealt with, and now it's like, okay, don't sin anymore because your sin's been dealt with. But Jesus also gives us his perfect relationship with the Father. He gives us perfect standing as a perfect servant of God. So now we are in relationship with God. So that's what justification is. Our, our, our debt before God has been taken away so that we can be restored to relationship with him. And so we're receiving that from the Lord. It's a free gift. And then sanctification, we're being transformed into the image of Christ, that God's not only saving us from our sin, but he's making us more like Christ, that we're taking more and more of Jesus' image on. And then the future promise of glorification, that one day we'll be completely free from sin, and we'll be completely in union with God. Because even though we are legally in perfect union with God, we're still, we're still sinful, we still sin, we still um, feel, feel a break in fellowship, but one day we'll be perfectly restored to him in perfect unity. And so all of that, you're receiving all of this horizontally from God, and then Paul's like, and you got to extend this out, or vertically, sorry. You know, extend this vertically, and then you've got to extend it out horizontally to others in your life. And in a marriage, this is extremely powerful, because if my wife, um, it's typically the other way around, but if my wife wrongs me one day, I can't say, all right, she wronged me, so I'm going to reciprocate to that level. Or she only did this much for me, so I'm only going to do this much for her. That's not at all what you're called. You're called. I'm called to serve her as Christ served me. Well, there's no easy out on that because how did Christ serve me? Unconditionally, perfectly. So that's my call to my wife. And so as we, as us married couples are trying to demonstrate that, and you singles obviously demonstrate that too in your relationships, um, you're, you're extending out this beautiful promise of the gospel that the world really just does not understand. And you're extending that out and showcasing that to the world when you, when you love like that when you do relationship like that. And that's gold. I, I've had this summer a lot of opportunities being blessed by the Lord at, at work to 
just talk a lot about marriage. I mean, that's one of the unique gifts of being a young married. People ask why. Like, why would you go get the ball and chain? That's like what they call it. Um, and you get to explain, like, the glory of it and what it points to. And even if they don't, even if they come away and kind of like, like, honestly, I had a girl at my work that was bisexual. And so we had some pretty lively conversations about about the design of, of, of uh, marriage and, and uh, all that. And it's not like she came away changed necessarily, but I've never had an example where I shared, okay, this is how a man and woman are to relate, God designed them to relate, but this gospel focus, I don't think I've had anyone say that's ridiculous or that's stupid. Or like, I don't want that. I think everyone kind of knows, even though they're selfish and don't want to give up their sin, they look at that kind of relationship and they're like, I would want that. You know, I think because that's innately tied to how our souls are wired like we, we would desire that you wouldn't desire being in a relationship where you're loved unconditionally where you can trust the other person because they've covenanted to you because there's an objective standard outside of you that's been done for both of you and you get to share that together a shared one flesh identity um it's gold it really is and it's something that as a church we should cherish and protect so in conclusion i think kind of going right off of that I, uh, some application um some of us are tempted, if we're honest, especially on this campus, to kind of think debating marriage, kind of political, kind of offensive, don't really want to talk about it, it's kind of charged, I'd rather not put a stumbling block for the gospel, I'd instead like to be Jesus to people and just kind of share the gospel and kind of avoid that stuff. And I would just challenge you that an attack on marriage is the attack on the gospel. That's what Paul's saying, he's like, this mystery points to Christ in the church, and I've drank the Kool-Aid too. I mean, I've, we've drank the Kool-Aid of tolerance. This kind of idea that we need to we need to kind of be careful in how we walk. And I would just we come from a tradition of centuries and centuries of martyrdom and persecution. Why why should we think in the 21st century all of a sudden we should be popular or all of a sudden we should be just kind of ecumenical to all social ethical things that are going on in our culture? We should just kind of walk around on eggshells. Um, you know, how dare we do that? Marriage is about the glory of God. It's about Christ and the church. It's essential, and not even that, but it's also essential to human society. Like, even if it's a common grace to our society that marriages would be, would be healthy. Because um, I'm not saying an unbeliever can't have a healthy marriage. They can. They don't get the deepness of it. They don't get the deepness of the gospel. They don't get the gold that we have at the bottom of what it means to, to covenant to each other. Um, but society is, is very dependent on, on a stable family environment. In our culture right now, it's just so unstable because of that. And I think we need more people that are, are willing to step up and say, this is my view on marriage, and this is why I think it is, it is this way, and this is why I think it is best. Um, it's, a, it's a powerful testimony. And one of the ways that we show that is obviously, like we said, in living it out. So husbands, love your wives. Remember that she's taken out of your side. She's not an accessory. She's not a cherry on top of your Sunday that kind of makes your life a little bit better. She has to be cherished, kept, led, and partnered with to display the image of God and glorify his name. As Matthew Henry says, he says, woman wasn't taken out of the feet of man. She's not meant to be stomped on. She wasn't taken out of the head of man. She's not to rule over him. She's taken out of the side of man to be cherished and protected. And so let's demonstrate that to our marriages. And women, likewise, take, take joy in the fact that you can look at Christ and you see a perfect picture of submission. That you get to demonstrate that. It's not weakness. It's not weakness at all. It's beautiful. And you get to display that to the world. And uh, you're equal. You're equally made in the image of God. Um, you're not second rate. And so our marriages should display the glory of God. If your marriage is not displaying the gospel, it's not a Christian marriage. And so display the gospel to one each other. 
Now, singles, pray for us. Um, Our marriages are under attack every day at work, at home, at school. The evil one hates marriage. And as Redeemer husbands and wives, we, we would like to model this to our culture, how men and women to relate, and we likewise need you to be praying for us. And likewise, take the opportunity to model how, how a man and how a woman should act in your singleness. Your singleness is a unique gift. I think Derek Webb says it's the gift that nobody wants. But, but, but it is a gift. That's a joke, honestly. I mean, it's, it's true. Like, you have a unique gift. And whether it's for a particular season or for the rest of your life, you know, use that gift to the glory of God. You have unique gifts with your singleness. And so uh, use those. And for those of you that do feel called to marriage, that don't feel called to radical gospel service of single life, um, prepare yourself for marriage. You know, women, adorn your life um, with fruits of a godly woman. Find a godly woman that is praised in Scripture and apply the gospel to your, to your womanhood. Um, someone wisely said, a woman's heart should be so hidden in Christ that a man should have to seek him first to find her. I think that's, that's really good. I think that's good wisdom. So you're, you're, you should be so hidden in Christ that a man should have to seek Christ first to find you. And men, prepare yourselves to lead a wife. Take steps to become a godly man who's capable of leading a godly woman that the scripture praises. So surround yourself with godly men. Run hard after the Lord. Become self-sufficient. Take ownership of, of the dominion that God has given you, your schoolwork, your time, your church life, your finances, your spiritual disciplines. Um, you know, And then... Uh, Pray for a wife, and then don't just like wait for God to lower one out from the ceiling, but uh, but uh, but be proactive, and uh, you know look around you. So if you're praying for it, look around you. Find a godly woman that's around you that the Scripture praises and is deserving deserving of a godly man's pursuit, and get on it, pursue. You know, so it's a good thing. Um, so may we all join together in this endeavor, whether single or married, to show the world how God created man and woman to relate. And one way that we do this is by holding the theme of today's sermon high. Marriage is holy, sacred, and from God for his glory. Uh, you know, may the Lord help us display this to our culture. Let us pray. Uh, dear Father, we come before you as men and women, God, that have either are or have once been cut off from you. And God, we often just live our lives just free from your design and free from your decrees. God, we repent of that. As a husband, I know I failed at this so many times, God. And as a single man, I failed at this to demonstrate how you, you created us to be. And so, God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, may we love the gospel. May we love what Jesus did for us. And let that change us from the inside out, God. Change the way that we do marriage. Change the way that we do singleness. Change the way we do manhood and the way we do womanhood. That we would be a light to our culture. God, we repent of the ideas of our culture that hate marriage, that degrade women. Um, and we just we repent of that and ask that we could be a beacon of light in our culture, God, that regardless of where our culture goes, that we would be faithful to Scripture, we'd be faithful to the tradition of Christianity, to uphold the things that you uphold, and to love them in the right place. And so just pray for a Redeemer, God. We pray for, for our marriages. Um, may we counsel each other and uh, repent together and uh, push each other on towards godliness. And it's his name we pray. Amen.